pass out, yeah, you have to start on the table. Yeah, apparently it was the week for that. <coughs> What's that? She's right there, dude. Heavenly Father, God, we just thank you for this 
morning, God, just full of your mercy and grace. God, as we're reminded of what you've done for us on the cross. God, may we come just bringing glory to you. God, may we worship and honor you uh, through the singing, through the prayer, through God offering, through our, our, the preaching of the word. God, we just pray for Pastor Chris as he just uh, brings your word to us this morning. God, just work through him by your spirit. God, that you would be glorified in all things. God, that we would be here in awe of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Morning, church. Uh, my name is uh, Pastor Chris here. I'm one of the associate pastors. If you're visiting today, we, we welcome you. We're happy to have you. Um, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 10. And while you're turning there, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever started a project and you didn't finish it? It could be a project around the house, renovations, you know, it could be, you know, something you wanted to do on the car. Uh, you know, maybe it's that, like, lifelong dream to write the world's greatest novel, um, and you start it, and then 20 minutes in, you get that writer's block, and then it just kind of fizzles, you know? It's true that, you know, our object, the object of our projects, never truly satisfies until they're completed, right? Isn't that true? Think of a jigsaw puzzle with pieces missing or a painting not completed. They just kind of leave you unfulfilled. It's not everything that it was meant to be. It doesn't produce the joy it was intended to that it would if it was completed. And further, it can never be used to the fullness of, it was, of what it was meant to because it was never finished. Don't jump into a pool that doesn't have water in it. You're not going to be satisfied, of course. Well, last week, Pastor Nate unpacked for us Acts 10, 9 through 23a, and he taught us that God cleanses what is unclean by bringing salvation to the nations through Jesus Christ. Today, we're going to look at the remaining sections of Acts. That's Acts 10, 1 to 8, and then we're going to jump forward to 23b up to 48. And we're going to see that God doesn't leave things unfinished. He completes what he starts. And to do this, we're going to actually read the whole chapter of, again, chapter 10, to just help with context. And so if you can follow along in your Bibles, if you don't have a Bible today, uh, feel free to take the Bible in the chair in front of you. Um, feel free to follow it, and you can keep that. That's a gift from us to you. We, we like to give away Bibles. And so um, Acts chapter 10, verse, starting at verse 1, follow along with me in your Bibles. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of that day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. 
And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Yalpa and, and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon a tanner whose house is by the seaside. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Yopa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. And, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And it, were, and, and it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and the, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having been made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them to, in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Iopa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. And Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once. And you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. And so Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism, that John proclaimed how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. 
And we are witnesses of all that he did in the country of, Jew, of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as, uh, by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And as he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, then they asked him to remain for some days. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ who's opened our eyes, who's brought us from the kingdom of death into the kingdom of life and light. Lord God, we pray that you would prepare our hearts now to receive your word, Lord God. Lord, would you stir in us a heart to, to go and share and proclaim the good news of Christ, Lord God. And as we do this, Lord God, would you glorify yourself through the salvation uh, uh, that you bring through the hearing of your word, the gospel, Lord God. And so, Lord, give me your words today, Lord God, Father God. We pray that if anything I say is not of you, that they would fall, it would fall upon deaf ears. And Lord God, would you just glorify yourself in and through the teaching of your word this day, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, our first observation is found today in verses 1 to 8. Verses 1 to 8. And that, that verse, uh, our first point is really God, God prepares the heart. God prepares the heart. We are introduced to a man named Cornelius. He's a Roman centurion soldier. And so that meant he was in charge of people. He was in charge of a hundred soldiers himself. And we read that he was actually part of what was called a cohort, which was made up of 600 soldiers. So he was one of six centurions that made up this cohort. And in verse 2, Luke gives us really four positive characteristics to describe Cornelius, this Roman centurion, he was a devout man. He was a devout man. Cornelius lived a life of piety. He was a religious man. He took his religion seriously. And he didn't just believe in just any religion. He believed in the religion of the Hebrews, the God of the Jews. Because we also read that he feared God. Cornelius feared God. He didn't fear the Roman gods, but one God, the God of Israel. And Cornelius was a God-fearer. This was a term that was used in that day and age. This term was someone who described somebody who was a Jew, uh, not a Jew, but he really identified with the Jewish religion. So he was a Gentile who kind of believed a lot of what the Jews believed. He was somebody who would have adopted many of their Jewish religious practices and beliefs, but he probably didn't go so far as become, uh, get circumcised, otherwise he would have become a full Jew. And so we also hear that this fear of God that he had actually extended even so far to his family. See, Cornelius taught his family what he believed. He practiced it. He showed them, men, we are called to lead our families well. We are called to teach the word of God and the fear of God to our families. And so Cornelius was a devout man. 
He was a God-fearing man, but he was also a charitable man. He was a charitable man. We read that Cornelius gave alms generously to the poor. He was probably very wealthy being a centurion. He had his servants. We read about them shortly. And so he would have given food and money to the poor. He was sensitive and compassionate to those in need around him. This was not like so many of the Jews to look good before others. There's no indication from that from the text. He had a deep desire to help the downcast. And finally, we read he is a praying man. Cornelius was a praying man. He was not praying to some Roman deity or any other god, but he spoke to God. Being a Gentile, a Roman centurion, occupying Israel did not hinder his belief that he could cry out and call out to God. And the text actually says he prays continually. That prayer wasn't an afterthought. Prayer was an active part of Cornelius' life. And so we read of this Cornelius that he was a devout man, a God-fearing man, a charitable man, and a praying man. Cornelius, by all his outward actions, would appear to be a saved man. But was he? He walked the walk and talked the talk, but was he in fact a child of God? It appears that he had what so many Jews did not, and that was a healthy fear of God, which led to him to pray and live a different life. We read in Micah 6, 8, that it says, He, God, has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? This sounds like Cornelius, doesn't it? So does this mean Cornelius was a saved man? He feared God. Scripture says a lot about the fear of the Lord. It is the beginning of wisdom, Psalm 111.10. It is the beginning of knowledge, Proverbs 1 and 7. It even says in Proverbs 8.13 that the fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. So was Cornelius saved. He had a prepared heart, but does that equate to a saved heart? Luke goes on in verses 3 to 5 after describing Cornelius. He says that at the ninth hour of the day, which would be 3 p.m., he had this vision. And an angel of God appeared to him and called him by name. He called him by name, this Roman Gentile soldier. And not only does he call him by name, but the text says he came in. That is, the angel entered into Cornelius' house. This was unheard of for Jews. Jews would not dare enter a Gentile's house. And yet this angel does. And what is the natural response? Probably similar to what I think I would. He was frozen in terror. He was afraid. It's a very common response in Scripture when an angel shows up on the screen that people get afraid. But the angel tells him, he says, your prayers and your almsgiving have ascended to God as a memorial, Cornelius. See, this language of ascending and memorial would draw any Jewish reader's attention back to what was called the altar of incense in the temple. See, when incense was burned, its smoke would ascend and would, would represent the prayers of God's people and it would ascend to God and God would remember their prayers. In Psalm 141.2, David says, let my prayer be counted as incense before you. This showed this intimacy, it showed this idea that God cared, he listened. Zechariah, if you recall in Luke 1 and 9, when Zechariah went into the temple to burn incense, what were all the people outside doing? 
Well, verse 10 says, and the whole multitude of people were praying outside at that hour of incense. So God is listening to this prayer of this occupying Gentile Roman soldier, and he sends him an angel. So again, does this mean that this Cornelius was saved? And what exactly were these prayers that he had prayed that now had ascended to God? You know, I think that, you know, if an angel appeared to me telling me that he had heard my prayers, sure, that's humbling, but I would be terrified. If I could even move, I'd be so scared I probably couldn't move, but if I could, I think my face would hit the dirt pretty quick, you know? I'd do this face plant in the dirt because I'd be petrified. I'd hit the ground. But the risk becomes that I, I think that we would be prone to think, wow, you know, God really does hear my prayer. Why? Because this angel appeared. And it's dangerous because what if the angel doesn't appear? Does that suddenly mean that God didn't hear Cornelius' prayers, that it, doesn't, that it means he doesn't hear your prayers because he doesn't send an angel? Of course not. Of course not. God hears your prayers. Sometimes, church, you may feel like your prayers are just bouncing off a ceiling, that God is not picking up the phone, you're just getting the busy dial, you know? But God always hears and he always answers. Sometimes it's yes, and sometimes it's no, which is hard. And sometimes he says, wait. It's probably even harder, isn't it? But it's always, always trust me. You may not know why things are happening in your life, but you know the one who does, and you can trust him, and he's good, and he's good all the time. As we move on in verses 5 to 8, we find that this angel tells Cornelius, to send men up to Joppa and find this man named Peter and bring him back. In other words, Cornelius, your prayers, uh, you're going to have to wait a bit to get an answer. And so he sends men up. And so we find that this command has been given. This angel now leaves. And Cornelius is quick to respond, isn't he? Cornelius' response to obey was immediate. He calls his two servants and this devout soldier and relates everything that just has happened and then he sends them on their way. And we kind of get this tension building, don't we? Where why send for this Peter? He doesn't tell us. Why did this angel just not tell me what I needed to hear? Cornelius is left having to wait. His prayers have been heard, but how is God responding to his prayers he sends for Peter at once, not knowing what this Peter will say or do. You know, as Christians, we should be quick to respond to God, shouldn't we? We should be short-gap people. You know what I mean by short-gap people? We obey God, and we have a right heart when we obey God. We don't grumble. But the time it takes for us to respond should be very short. For example, if your wife, men, asks you to cut the grass and you say yes, one week goes by before you do it, it's probably not what she had in mind when she asked you. I think I just heard my wife say amen, preach it, pastor. <laughs> but more seriously, when God reveals your sin, how quick are you to confess? How quick are you to go make amends and ask for forgiveness from that brother and sister that you've sinned against? Or do we kind of say, that's too awkward? so uncomfortable. God hears, but he sees as well. And we find that this Cornelius had a prepared heart, but for what? 
He's a devout man. He fears God. He's charitable. He prays. And now we see he even obeys when God commands. But this leads to our second observation found in Acts 23b. We're going to jump ahead to 23b now up to 33. If God has prepared a heart, he will also now send a heart. He will send a heart. Read with me in verse 23b where it says, The next day he, that is Peter, rose and went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. Cornelius' servants now have shown up to Joppa. They have found Peter, and now they have brought Peter back to Caesarea, and Peter goes with them. And we find out later that he doesn't go by himself. He brings six Jewish believers with him. And it's still kind of cryptic, isn't it? Peter is sent by God to go with these men, even though he doesn't really know the full reason why he's going. And Cornelius' men have been sent to Peter, and they don't really know either. And we read that they have arrived in Caesarea the day after Peter left. And yet Cornelius is waiting there. He's expecting them. He's anxious. It would have been probably a a serious full day's walk. It was about a 60-kilometer hike from uh, Caesarea to Joppa and back. We read now, or we read shortly, that it was about four days later now that they've arrived, and Cornelius is anxious to hear what Peter was going to say. He's been waiting. What is this message? What is this message? He's invited his relatives and his close friends to hear this very message. Cornelius' heart had been prepared. He desired to hear. He, He wanted to know. He had a desire to know what is this message. And so we ask again, was Cornelius, who had this prepared heart, was he in fact saved? He was devout. He fears God. He's charitable. He prays. He's obedient. And now you could almost say he was almost evangelistic because he sent people to come and hear this message, this message from God. You see, God is behind the sending, isn't he? We don't know what God is planning. We often think we did it entirely on our own. But God is sovereignly working through all people and events to carry out his perfect plans, and he doesn't always tell us what he's doing. I know I recall a story one time of this evangelist, and um, he had gone to New York City um, for this conference. And so while he's driving in his car, he's in kind of a quieter area of, of the city, and suddenly he feels a strong urge to get out and open air preach. And so he pulls his car over, he gets out, and it's really awkward because it's, it's like a ghost town. Where he was, there was no one. And he's thinking, what in the world? Why am I doing this? But he gets up anyways and he stands up on the bench and he just, he shares, he preaches the gospel for several minutes. He's just preaching to the pigeons and the rats of New York City. And then after several minutes, he gets back in his car and he drives away. Nothing happens. No light from heaven, no nothing. About a year later, he's back in New York City because there's this conference again, and he's one of the speakers now. And after the conference, he's speaking, he gets down, and suddenly this man kind of beelines up to him and says, I know you. I recognize your voice. He says, a year ago, I was in my apartment with the window open, and I heard you preaching the gospel, and I got saved we can be so quick to talk, to our, talk ourselves out of doing what God has called us because it just doesn't seem to make sense from our vantage point. But it's not about our vantage point. This man was faithful to do what God had called. He sent him to do 
And even though he didn't know it at the time, God was doing something. And we read later that Peter here was faithful himself. He was sent and he obeyed God and God sent him to Cornelius. And in verses 25 through 26, we read that when Cornelius sees Peter, he falls at Peter's feet and he worships him. You know, we see a sense here that Cornelius was very humble, wasn't he? He, he had this respect for Peter, for the message that he had been waiting. This Roman centurion falling at the feet of this Jewish fisherman is shocking. See, Cornelius knew Peter wasn't God. He, wasn't, he was just paying homage to him for how God was using him. And it was clearly misplaced. Right? Clearly misplaced, and there's no suggestion from Peter that he was scolding Cornelius. He corrects him in gentleness. He says, get up. I'm only a man too. You know, one person once said, we follow the man only as far as that man follows Christ. And yet, how quick do we get our eyes off God and start to idolize man? And that's where we get into trouble, isn't it? The irony of this story is that Today, there's a statue in St. Peter's Basilica of Peter, and it's been there for 800 years, and people have kissed its toes so much that the toes have worn off, and you can go on the internet and you can see it. Peter was just a man used by God. He doesn't get the glory for what was done through him. Jesus Christ gets the glory for what he does. God is the one behind the sending. In verses 27 to 29, now Peter does this unthinkable thing and he enters himself into the Gentiles' home and where he finds all these people. He sees all these people. And he starts by saying how unlawful it was for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But see, God was preparing hearts, wasn't he? He was preparing Cornelius' heart. He had been preparing Peter's heart for this as well. This view of unlawfulness towards actual Gentiles was actually not even found in the Mosaic Law. It was a tradition practiced during this time. See, to visit with a Gentile could make you unclean. It could. They could have had contact with unclean food or done something themselves that made themselves unclean in which then they could in turn make this Jew unclean. See, the Jews were called to be set apart and holy. They were to be a light to the nations, right? The problem in the Old Testament was that they mingled with these other nations and they adopted their pagan practices, which was in entirely against the word of God and the command of God, which led to their exile. But at the time of Jesus, they've swung the pendulum so far the other way that they don't want even to talk to Gentiles. They wanted nothing to do with Gentiles. In fact, there, an early Jewish book called the Book of Jubilees, written around 100 BC, says this to the Jew. It says, separate yourself from the nations, eat not with them, and do not according to their works, and become not their associate, for their works are unclean, and all their ways are a pollution and an abomination and uncleanness. Peter was coming out of this way of thinking. As Pastor Nate talked and taught us last week, where oil and water do not mix, neither did Jews and Gentiles, and yet now God was doing the impossible. He was mixing the unmixable. God was breaking down barriers. Isaiah's prophecy in 49.6 is now being fulfilled. It says, I will make you as a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And so Peter asked Cornelius, why have you sent for me? 
And we find in verses 30 to 33, Cornelius retells his de- in detail his divine encounter. He says, well, this angel appeared to me, and this angel told me about how my prayers ascended to God, and now he's told me to go find you, Peter. And now Cornelius, having waited four days, finally says to Peter, now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. What is this message? Enough waiting. Tell us what we need to know. And this leads to our final observation found in Acts 10, 34 through 48. If God prepares a heart, he will send a heart so he can redeem the heart. He can redeem the heart. The answer to the question whether Cornelius is saved is no. Cornelius was not saved. And the message Peter brought is a message of salvation. He brought the gospel. God was preparing him to be saved. See, Cornelius did not know the way of salvation. We find in John 6, 44, it says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so Peter will now give the gospel to Cornelius, his way of salvation. We read in verses 36 to 39, Peter now will recount the life of Christ. The life of Christ. Jesus' life demonstrated that God was with him. Jesus was baptized with water and baptized by the Holy Spirit at the Jordan River. He went around with power now, doing amazing miracles, reversing the curse, healing the sick, casting out demons. Jesus went around to preach good news of this kingdom of God and that it was at hand. His ministry testified that Emmanuel, God with us, was really with us. He is a messianic figure of Isaiah 9 and 6, 9, 6 to 7, where it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness for this time forth and forevermore. And this Jesus, as Luke says, he is Lord of all, Gentile and Jew. He then says, but this Jesus died. He shares the death of Christ. Jesus died and they were eyewitnesses to it. Jesus physically died. He was buried Jesus was hung on a tree. That means he was crucified. Something that I think Cornelius might have felt a little responsible for, maybe being a Roman centurion, a little guilt. Hanging on a tree, it meant that you were cursed by God. We read in Deuteronomy 21, 23, it says, for a hangman is cursed by God. And Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Brothers and sisters in Christ became cursed of God so that you wouldn't be. Without Christ's death, there is no payment of sin. Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Christ died. And finally, in verses 40 to 41, it says that Jesus, this Jesus did not stay dead, though. Jesus rose from the dead victorious. Amen? And they were witnesses to this miracle. 
as well. This was a physical resurrection. They ate with him and they drank with him. You know, without a physical resurrection, there is no salvation. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, that if Christ has not been raised, then our faith is futile and we are still in our sins. The hope of every Christian is found in the life, the death, and the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, who is this Jesus? Well, he is the one who will now judge the living and the dead in verses 42 to 43. I'm reminded of Daniel 7, 13 to 14, where it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. And as king, this Jesus judges, and he judges with righteousness. Revelation 19.11 says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, Jesus. And it is, he is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. So why? Why does Cornelius and his family need to hear this message? Why do we need to hear this message? Our family, our friends, our co-workers, the people across the street, the people across the world. Why does everyone need to hear this message? What is the conclusion to this divinely inspired message, a message that the prophets pointed to? Peter will tell us. Because everyone, everyone who believes in him, this Jesus, receives forgiveness of sins in his name. See, Cornelius was not saved. He needed to hear this message. God had prepared his heart for this message. He had prepared his family's hearts for this message. What was Cornelius' prayers? What were those prayers that ascended as a sweet memorial before God? The same question the Philippian jailer had asked in Acts 16.30. What must I do to be saved? If you jump to Acts 11.13-14 to 14 for a second... Peter is speaking to the Jews in Jerusalem about this very event. And he says, And he, Cornelius, told us how he had seen an angel stand in his house and say, Send to Yolpa and bring Simon, who's called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. If you're not a Christian today, you need to hear this message as well. You are called to believe just as Cornelius and his household was. Cornelius knew he was a sinner. He knew he could not save himself. He knew he needed salvation, and his good works were not going to cut it. God had prepared his heart, and so God had sent Peter with this gospel message. And as Peter is speaking, we read in verses 45 and 46 that the Holy Spirit fell upon them, and they started speaking in tongues. They believed and they were saved. The, the prepared heart has now finally become the redeemed heart. And the six Jewish believers with Peter are simply amazed. Welcome to the family, Gentiles. Welcome to the family. This begs the question, though, does this mean one needs to speak in tongues to be saved? No. As we've preached in the past and spoken, taught that Acts is, this, Acts is a special time. This event parallels Pentecost and shows the permanent presence of the Holy Spirit is now also available for Gentiles who repent and believe in the gospel. 
Remember, just in verse 43, Peter says, everyone who believes in him receive forgiveness of sins. Peter did not say everyone who believes and speaks in tongues receives forgiveness of sins. None of the other gospel presentations in the Bible say you must speak in tongues to be saved. Not John 3, 16 through 18, not Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, not Romans 10, 9 through 13, not 1 Corinthians 15 through 3 to 8, none. It is you believe you are saved. And now that this great salvation has finally fallen upon the Gentiles, what is Peter's natural response? Baptism. The immediate response to salvation is be baptized. There is no need to pray about it. There's no need to think, does God want me to get baptized now or later? No. Scripture always shows that baptism followed very soon after salvation. It was the first thing that was done. If you haven't been baptized here today, I strongly encourage you to reach out. We have a baptism class, and we can talk to you more about that. But there's another thing that's strange here. Peter actually here says, baptize them in the name of Jesus. However, Jesus says at the end of Matthew to be baptized in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. So what's happening here? Which is it? Do you baptize in Jesus' name or do you baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Many cults have kind of given birth because they've misinterpreted this passage and these, what is going on here. Baptizing in Jesus' name is not a formulaic expression like what Jesus gave us in Matthew. Baptizing in Jesus' name expresses by whose authority and power the baptism was to be done in. Because the one who does the baptizing is united with Christ, he is to baptize how Christ commanded. And we get a quick glimpse of this and of this Trinitarian formula, if you will, in Acts 19, 1 to 6. You don't need to turn there. But Paul had come across some disciples in Ephesus, and he asked them this question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And their response was weird. They said, well, we never even heard of a Holy Spirit. And his follow-up question is, well, to what were you baptized into then? How did Paul go from a question of the Holy Spirit to a question of baptism? Because if they had been baptized in the Trinitarian formula, they would have heard there was a Holy Spirit. They would have known. Paul knew this was how baptisms, baptisms were being done that people knew who the Holy Spirit was because they were baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so what is the response? They were to be baptized. And finally, we close off this verse. It says that they asked Peter to stay with them some days. Salvation leads to wanting more teaching, more fellowship, more intimacy. It's why we encourage you to get connected through membership and join a community group and discipleship group where these sort of intimate fellowship teaching can take place. So what is our hope from the passages that we've looked at today? What is the big idea? What is the so what? Is God is sovereign over the means and ends of salvation. God is sovereign over the means and ends of salvation. The means by preparing and sending people even when we don't see it, even when we don't understand it, and the ends by bringing people into his salvation through the gospel. So when we ask the question, what about that man in Amazon? He's in the Amazon jungle. 
what about him? How does he get saved? Well, if God prepares him, he will send someone and he will redeem him. We have found that Peter was faithful to go when called, when sent. Peter would travel those 60 60 or so kilometers with these Gentiles to deliver this message of salvation and God would use him to deliver this gospel message and through that message save Cornelius, his household, his relatives, and his friends. Cornelius and his household had been prepared by God. God had been drawing him. And at the proper time, God saved him. See, the reality for us is that God doesn't tell us who he's preparing, does he? They don't all look like Cornelius, but he still sends us. He still calls us to go. You may think, well, I don't feel like I'm sent. It's not actually about feeling, but obeying. Peter obeyed when God sent him. Peter didn't understand everything either. If Peter hadn't gone, God still would have sent someone. He might have pulled a Jonah on Peter (laughs) and made him go anyways, but he would have sent someone if he's preparing someone. See, the the project needed completing. A prepared heart needed to be redeemed. And God is sending us, and whether you go to your family, your friends, across the street or across the world, he still says go. And God will still complete that project. He doesn't leave the puzzle incomplete or the painting unfinished. But what's amazing is he chooses to include us in that project to help, if you will, to be the mouthpiece to complete those projects. It's like a three-story walk-up building and it's on fire. And you have some people who will run into that first floor to try to save someone. And then you have others who will go a little bit farther. They'll go up the second story and try to save people. Then you have those who will go the farthest. They'll go up into the first, up to the second, up to the third. They'll go the farthest distance to save somebody. Now tell me, would you ever fault the person who went only to the first floor? No, because he entered the building to snatch souls from the fire. God has chosen to allow us to be partakers in his plan of salvation by going and proclaiming. The question you need to ask yourself is, are you entering the building? Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord God, we thank you that you save. We thank you for the grace you give us, Lord God, to be partakers of your plan of salvation. Lord, we pray you will continue to prepare hearts out there, but prepare our hearts in here that we would go, Lord God, that we would open our mouths and leave the outcome up to you. Help us to be faithful in this, Lord God. And Lord, for your glory and the fame of your name, Lord, we pray that you would save souls today. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.